House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, today, we're, we're getting into the evil genius. And, um, of course, if anybody's seen the series, it's on Netflix. It's a four-part series. Um, and what we've got today is... Um, one of the authors of the book, Pizza Bomber, and it's the untold story of America's oldest shocking bank robbery. Um, so, Jerry Clark, welcome. Thank you, Al. Thanks uh, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I, I knew I had to get you on as soon as I was watching the series and, and I grabbed the book. Um, just amazing. Um, what a story, and it's surprising how complex it really is, because um, at first I was just thinking it would just be another sort of true crime story, but this is pretty a, a pretty wild, actually. Uh, Al, really, this is one of the most crazy, um, complex, uh, diabolical schemes you'll ever come across in, in certainly uh, modern criminal history. Um, the, the scheme that this group put together and the fact that these uh, self-proclaimed fractured intellectuals found each other and came up with this this scheme to to rob the bank. And, and really, the bank robbery, if you've watched Evil Genius, you know that the bank robbery is just, you know, the very tip of the iceberg for the other events that happen uh, in this case. And it just kept getting crazier and crazier as it unfolded. Yeah, actually, if someone presented this as a book or as a story for Hollywood, you would turn around and go, no, it's just too unbelievable. <laughs> you're, you're right. It seems so hard to to even write this as fiction. Uh, it, it, it was amazing to me as the lead investigator for the FBI, who had been to hundreds of bank robberies and several whole bank robberies where, you know, devices were used as a host device, you know, a fake bomb or something. This mm -hmm. uh, was different, and I knew it as soon as I arrived on scene, and it, it just went so bizarre from the minute it happened, and then, like I said, all the different twists and turns that take place during the course of the next several weeks, months, and years were, were truly amazing. Yeah, yeah, and just uh, for the listener's sake... Now this was um, in 2003, and yes. um, and what happened was uh, a bank was being robbed, and uh, when the police surrounded the bank, the robber came out and he had a device around his neck, and his mm -hmm. his name was uh, Brian Wells, and this device was a bomb, so they had him sit and they were watching him and they were trying to get information off him. Now. The bomb went off, yeah, and and killed him, and and yes. he said he was forced to do it before he was killed, and uh, so that in itself was kind of unbelievable in a way because you know you kind of think well, that's crazy, what kind of schemes he trying to pull off, but that was really right. only only you're right that's only a little part of the story that's like the where everybody came on board and became aware of what was going on. But there was a lot of history there, so um, I, it, <laughs> I don't know where to start with this because that's that's kind of where, where the crime was. But 
Uh, so, and I know I, just from seeing uh, TMZ, I guess you have a different point of view than than what they sort of portrayed at the end when they talked to the uh, prostitute. Um, what was her name? Jessica Hoopsick. Hoopsick. Right. Right. Hoopsick. Because her confession, you're you're not really agreeing with on that, are you? No, and and you know, without you know having oh. a spoiler yeah. situation here, I, it it certainly was not consistent. And this is the best way to put this. I loved the Evil Genius show in this respect. It it showed very well organized chronological view of of basically the complexity of this thing and and the multiple deaths that were involved. So Brian Wells robs the bank on August 28, 2003, comes out while we're waiting for the bomb squad to arrive. He's talking to us, say, at a pizza delivery driver and that he was forced to rob the bank uh, by a group of guys that had shot at him. And then he was to do a scavenger hunt uh, and go to several locations, according to some notes that he had, nine total pages of bank robbery notes, by the way, in this case. And he was in route to do that scavenger hunt to receive keys to unlock the collar that held the bomb around his neck when he was arrested. And, and that's where the conversation took place. While the bomb squad was in route and, and getting ready to suit up to make entry uh, or approach, um, the device detonated. And again, it's one of those moments in law enforcement. You've been at this for a while. I was a you know twenty seven year in law enforcement career, and it, it, you see different things. But this this was you know it, it was truly just one of those unbelievable moments that you have as a as an investigator. Immediate chaos. We you know figured out could be a secondary device. You back off. You, you know you stay away from the scene until we could clear it. We then followed the scavenger hunt that Mr. Wells was to do and determined he would have never had time to make all the locations to get the keys. And by the way, for the listeners, the most amazing part about this was there was never any keys found at any of the locations. So it gives you the intent that he was never to get the device off that day and was to be a, a, a disposable witness. So and he then, wanted to die, yeah. It, that's right. And then three days later, a second pizza delivery driver from the same shop where this pizza delivery driver worked uh, dies of an overdose, and it seemed very suspicious because he was very nervous after the death of his friend. And we didn't have any links yet, so you're trying to put this all together. And then three weeks later, an individual calls 911, and said, hey, my name's Bill Rothstein, and I'm going to commit suicide, and I'm driving around in my van with a gun, and by the way, there's a dead body in the freezer in my garage. Now, what makes that interesting, besides the fact that there's a dead body in the freezer, is that it was immediate, his, his garage and house was immediately adjacent to the delivery site where Brian Wells delivered the pizzas that got the bomber on his neck. So you, you start to think, is this possible that we have three dead individuals within three weeks, and what is the link? You know, what, what are the links? What puts these three deaths together? 
And that was my job as the FBI lead investigator to try to do. And it, it was uh, quite a ride after that. You know what? What you just described, though, almost sounds like part seven for the series Saw. You know, that's so fascinating that you say that because we were getting tips. You know, we had a 1-800-TIP line. We had a, a, a huge reward, and people were calling in, and they'd say, you've got to see the movie Saw because this sounds like a scheme from that movie. And so, you know, investigators were watching movies, and we were trying to figure out what the caller was made of. And people were saying, well, it looks like a clamp that you'd put around a telephone pole, and I'm an mm -hmm. engineer, or I'm a... You know, so we were getting so many different leads that we were trying to run down, but you're exactly right. That was one of the leads that we got. <laughs> Sounds like Florida, actually, but it's in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'll get the mail. Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Now, the other thing that was amazing was the FBI, because we didn't know what we had in this case. We didn't know if this was a one-time situation or it was going to happen again in another city or if it was international or domestic they elevated this case to a major case status. So it's now uh, and was considered FBI Major Case 203, which puts it in some really high-level uh, category with, with other notorious, certainly, crimes. And, and just to give you an example, Major Case 182 was, was the Twin Towers and 9-11, and, and, and Major Case 117 was Tim McVeigh. And so, I mean... It, it was it was that you know concerning initially, and it had never happened before, you know, and that's what what people were extremely nervous and uptight about. One of the key elements to the whole case is whether or not the the the, the, the guy uh, Brian Wells that got blown up, if he knew. Right if he was aware of what he was doing or if he like he knew the people and this was supposed to be a pretend thing or if and, right. yeah and so it was kind of a that's kind of the question that we're left with well and again in in the series in evil genius that i was complimenting the part about it that's difficult for me as the investigator is that you try to condense you know years of investigation into four hours. And so, so much detail is lost. And then if you have, as a, you know, producer, you know, a, a sort of a slant or a bent that you're trying to achieve, you know, you can make it look like anything's possible. But if you attended the trial for Marjorie D. Armstrong, and I can explain to your listeners that the guy in the freezer that was right next to the tower site location was the boyfriend of Marjorie D. Armstrong, who shot him twice in the back with a shotgun and solicited Bill Rothstein, her friend, to help move the body from her house to his house with the intention of, once it was frozen, to cut it up with a chainsaw and then put it in an ice chipper to get rid of all the pieces. And they were in that process when Bill Rothstein lost his nerve and then turned in Marjorie Deal Armstrong for the killing of James Roden, the guy in the freezer, um, because he thought she was going to kill him next because he wasn't moving fast enough to dispose of the body. So 
those events led us to her, and she had such a past. If you were from Erie, Pennsylvania, you knew her because she had shot one of her boyfriends six times and was acquitted in, in a past case in the 80s and then had another boyfriend she rushed to the hospital. That was actually her husband, I'm sorry, who died uh, bleeding from his ear. And she said he fell and hit a coffee table, which, you know, has now been challenged and questioned looking back. Um, other people around her, you know, were mysteriously dying and all men. And so yeah. it became so much more than just a guy going into a bank and robbing it. There was just a lot more there. Almost a Black Widow situation. Very fascinating. Our our third uh, book, my co-author and I wrote, because of the fascination with females and female serial killers, uh, we, we wrote Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong inside the mind of a female serial killer because I had interviewed her nine times and my co-author, Ed Palatella, a Stanford uh, master's graduate uh, in journalism, a terrific writer, uh, wrote the book to show how unique she was, a female who killed in violent fashion using a weapon, which is different than some of the other females who had killed multiple people in the past by suffocation or poison or whatever mm-hmm. it turns out to be. But to use a gun, put her in the Eileen Wernos category, and so she was very unique, and we thought, boy, people want to learn more about her. So that whole third book, Mania, uh, really goes through the development of, of Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Well, during during these interviews, uh, wow, I mean, i, I got to ask this. During the interviews, did she ever state what her motivations were? I mean, everybody's got that trigger event, but what yes. what were her motivations? Here's the whole crux of the pizza bomber case, and it was specifically designed around Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Marjorie Deal Armstrong came from, uh, she was an only child, and she came from a, a set of parents that seemed by all intents and purposes very normal, uh, normal uh, upbringing. Mar- Marjorie was, uh, you know, 12th in her class of, of hundreds of students, was a valedictorian, she went on to get a master's degree, uh, very, very bright. Not your average person that you would invent in your mind would be uh, killing multiple men. But as it turned out, she had, uh, you know, some some history of, of potential bipolar disorders, certainly some, some uh, personality disorders, and she just had this real anger toward men and the violence toward men and she just developed into one of the you know most interesting people and i don't say that in a you know complimentary way but as a law enforcement officer someone Mm -hmm. to interview like her and i'll never forget when i sat with her and i looked her in the eyes and i i I just couldn't believe you know uh, how how she looked and how she talked but she was very manipulative and very smart and she never would admit that she was involved in the Brian Wells case. And she she kept saying, Bill Rothstein did it, and Bill Rothstein put me in this position. And he knew that he was going to die, so he didn't want anybody else to have me, so he'd rather have me in jail, so he set me up. 
And that was sort of her mindset, but her explanation of, well, I was at the crime scene, I was at the tower site where he got the bomb put on, I was at the site where they called in the pizza order. It didn't make sense to anybody but her. But back to her story on how she got involved, her parents had this uh, successful, you know, uh, financial uh, background, and they had her, fa- her mother died, and her father had about uh, just short of $2 million, and she wanted it, and she wanted it now. So she said, you know what? i got to kill my father to get this money. So she said to friend Ken Barnes, hey, you know what? Can you kill my father? And he said, yeah, I'll kill your father, but I need 250000 down. <sighs> she said, well, where am I going to get 250000 Well, let's rob the bank. So the whole crux of this pizza bomber, collar bomb, major case 203 for the FBI was to rob the bank to get the money to so pay Ken Barnes a hitman to kill her father to get the inheritance. And that's why that whole thing took place. Wow. You know, I mean, I'm not saying this, you know, complimentary, but it, it all seems to make a bizarre sort of sense. You know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. You, you can't that just go down to the local check cashing place. <laughs> it, but it does, you know. I, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go down there and ask him to take out a loan so I can have this guy knocked off. Um, right. That's right. It's That's weird. Right. I'm going to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna rob the bank. Now, back to your question about Brian Wells, because that's the whole mystery and, and seemingly the, the, the slant that, that Evil Genius was interested in portraying. And that's fine. I, 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 you know what? It is what it is. But if you look at the facts of the case, and if you look at Marjorie D. Armstrong on trial, because she did go to trial in this case, and Ken Barnes, to his credit, pled guilty to this conspiracy and was sentenced to 45 years and agreed to testify against Marjorie Deal Armstrong, which he did. The whole thing was that Brian Wells frequented prostitutes in Erie. He was a rather simple guy, but at the same time liked uh, hanging out with prostitutes. And when we did a search warrant the night of the bank robbery, in his house was a notebook that listed everybody he knew, and two of the names in that notebook, in his own handwriting, were known prostitutes in the city of Erie. And we found Jessica, which was one of them, and talked to her. And the bottom line was Jessica introduced Brian to Ken Barnes because Brian used to drive Jessica around to get crack cocaine, and then they would go... uh, you know, he would pay her for their, you know, transsexual transaction. She would then pay Ken Barnes for crack cocaine, and everybody was happy. Well, in that introduction, they were looking for a guy that they might use in this bank robbery that would, you know, be the guy that went and did the scavenger hunt and look like a hostage. And so they talked them into it. The problem was Brian Wells, the day he shows up to get the device put around his neck, uh, when he was delivering the pizza, he he looked at the device and said, no, you know what, this looks too real, I don't want to do it. And they forced him to do it and said, stick with this story that we tell you, and it's only fake, and you wear the device and nothing's going to happen. And so he went ahead and did it. Uh, 
believing that the device was not real. And so Jessica fully admitted introducing these people to Brian Wells, but then in the documentary made the statement at the end that he never knew what he was, you know, going to do once uh, once he showed up to rob the bank. And that was just not consistent with the facts of the evidence. Hmm. Now, Marjorie... Deal. What do you think of her? Like when you actually interviewed her and stuff, what what was your yeah. overall impression? I mean, of oh, course, gosh. of course, not to date her, but um. <laughs> right, she certainly didn't want to be Marjorie's boyfriend because no. she didn't last long. But the thing about her that was interesting to me was how manipulative she was, but how cunning she was. She here's a great example. You would you would be interviewing her, and she would be just fine until you put her in a position where she had to answer a difficult question. Now, the way she would distract you was to get angry and get upset and try to get you off course. And so she'd say things that were really vile, quite honestly. And I'd say, Marge, you cannot insult me personally. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. We need to get back to the answer. And she would get extremely frustrated by that because most people – would get in a fight with her and then things would be over and she mm-hmm. basically accomplished her her directive, which was to avoid answering the question. But here's another quick example. We, we would take her uh, to get um, processed. And I'll never forget this, walking out of the FBI and the cameras are rolling and she's going, the FBI framed me and, and uh, this is a kangaroo court and all this bad things about the FBI and Jerry Clark. We get in, shut the door to my government vehicle that we've taken her back to the prison, and she goes, sorry, Jerry, I had to do that. And I said, Marge, that's okay. It doesn't doesn't affect me. You know, it's no problem. Then she said, can we stop at the Wendy's? Because I probably missed dinner at the jail. And I said, sure, let's stop at the Wendy's. Now, again, you can't drive Marge in and take her inside, so we have to go through a drive-thru. But, I mean, those are the kind of stories that are so fascinating to me because of how she could turn it off and turn it on. You know, when she had to be mean and aggressive, she would. When she had to be nice and, and helpful, she could. But she went down and she died a year ago, April, of breast cancer in Federal Correctional Facility in Carswell, Texas, and um, never, ever admitted fully her involvement in the case. Wow. Uh, and she and she never and and I know they they showed the parts about her uh, when she was in prison and and uh, how she was uh, after the uh, Jessica Hoopsick who was yes you know kind of the you know I don't know was she was she the girlfriend of Brian Wells or was she just kind of hanging out you know they were hanging out but she described it to us as. You know, he became more than just a a relationship where he would pay her for sex. You know, a, a prostitute, you know, uh, client type situation. She said, you know, I actually started to like Brian, and we became very close. And and that's why I think she was having some change in in her thoughts. Um, you know, most recently about that, Jessica had a real addiction problem, and so every time we interviewed her. 
she was in various states of, of, of bad, high, and, and we would take her directly to a drug clinic or to a woman's shelter, and she would last a month or two and then back out in the, on the street. And, and she just would go in and out of, you know, really bad conditions. And, and I, I felt bad for Jessica in a way because I knew she felt bad. She introduced Brian to these people. And Brian Wells did not deserve to die. Even if he's partly cooperative or semi-cooperative, nobody deserves to die like he did, uh, you know, being videotaped for the world to see uh, a device detonate. And I, I, I always remember, you know, that moment that that happened and think of him as a brother or a son, you know, and, and, it, it didn't matter to me if he was in or not. I didn't want him to be in or out. As an FBI agent, you know, you got you, you really have to go where the evidence takes you. And the evidence showed that she was introduced, or she introduced him to these people, and they basically duped them. You know, they, they told him it wouldn't be real. And that's why if you see him in the bank, and the witnesses describing him as very cavalier robbing the bank, you know, he reaches in the basket pulls out a lollipop with a live device around his neck, um, is swinging the, the bag of money. They also gave him a cane that was a fully operational single-shot 12-gauge capable of firing a 12-gauge round. So I, I, that always perplexed me. Why would you give a bank hostage a gun? You know, you already made him a hostage. And Ken Barnes later told us it was because Bill Rothstein thought, well, if the, they didn't believe you in the bank that the, the, the device was real, then raise up the cane gun and rob the bank with the gun. So, I mean, so it, it all played to the intent that Brian knew these people and what was going on. And it doesn't fit the fact or narrative that he, you know, just showed up that day and was a total innocent. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit all the evidence. Beside the fact that we had a, a witness, and a very credible witness, not related to the case, see Brian Wells leaving the tower site where he delivered the pizzas and got the bomb put on his neck on the 28th. They saw him on August 27th leaving the tower site. And according to Ken Barnes and other people that were involved, there was a pre-planning meeting at the tower site the day before. So his involvement, you know, in my mind, is without question. Yeah, yeah. Now they they also portrayed him as to be kind of maybe slow, not very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, did you believe? Right. Did, did you believe that? No, and you know what? That that's a great question too, Al, because a lot of people have described him as as extremely slow. He was not extremely slow. He was average intelligence. We had an IQ score even from his high school days. Uh, very average intelligence. He wasn't a motivated guy. You know, he didn't have a lot of motivation. He didn't have a lot of materialistic uh, views of life. You know, didn't have a lot of things, but didn't care to. You know, if he rented a few movies at night, watched movies, had some cats, you know, had a relatively quiet life. But the fact where they portray him as, as slow or mentally um, challenged in some way, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, because that's how I I left it. I left it thinking, oh, yeah, he was, all, and that that kind of adds to uh, Jessica's 
um, confession of him he, being too stupid to realize, and he was uh, like, yeah. you know, they they kind of let that yes. go so that you think, oh, he's really a, a little bit, you know, slow, and he doesn't know, and they just took advantage. Well, they did take advantage of him, but right, you know, what, and to me, that's the differentiation. It's it's slow versus gullible. And in my mind, he wasn't slow, but he was extremely naive and gullible. And those two can be very separate. And, and that's how I describe him, more of somebody with, um, you know, a, a, an ability to be very naive and trusting. And, and that led to his downfall, quite honestly. Yeah. And Jessica also claimed to be pregnant with his child. Yeah, now that was interesting, and it wasn't a new development. We had known that all the way back. Uh, she was pregnant um, in a couple different times during the course of the investigation because the investigation did go from 2003 to 2007 before we indicted it, and then 2010 was trial, and 2011 was finally sentencing. So this thing went on for, for quite a period of time. And the reason it went from... 2003 to 2005 was Bill Rothstein dies of cancer, the guy that has the body in his freezer, and then Marjorie Deal Armstrong is declared incompetent to stand trial for shooting her boyfriend who ended up in the freezer, who, by the way, uh, James Roden had a role in this case prior to her shooting him. And one night he says to her, you know what, I'm going to go to the police about that robbery you're going to do and because they had an argument. And she wasn't going to let that happen, of course, so she shot him twice in the back. So he initially had a role in it also. And here's the other part that Evil Genius uh, doesn't talk about quite a lot, is the second pizza delivery driver also had a role in this case, and his role was to make sure that Brian Wells continued to cooperate with the robbery, and then both were going to get a financial payment for that. And they can't really talk about that because if Panetti's in, the second pizza delivery driver, as being involved, then you'd have to believe that, well, you know, Wells was in. And so you can't really connect those two if they're not connected together. And again, I'm telling everybody in the audience, you have to see Eagle Genius. I mean, Barbara Schroeder, the director, uh, did an amazing job with putting together what she did. Uh, Trey Borzileri, the other producer, had more of an interest in Brian being innocent, uh, but Barbara, I think, was interested in, in portraying the story as it was. And so I, I still think it's, it's fascinating uh, to watch, and it certainly is binge-worthy material. It really is. You know, Bill Rothstein, um, how, what was his relationship with Marjorie? They weren't boyfriend-girlfriend. Why was he willing to do so much? Like, like she called him, I've got a body. You know, what kind right. of, wh how, why would she call him? What kind of relationship did they have? They had a relationship all the way back to the 1970s where Bill worked at his parents, had a, a bottling, distributing a, a Coca-Cola-type uh, they called it Rolla Cola, uh, bottling uh, um, colas. And he worked there, and Marjorie used to come in as a customer, and so they met all the way back. And at one point, were even engaged, which a lot of people don't know um, that those two had a relationship. And 
she really would turn to him over the course of the next, you know, 40 years of any time she had a situation, she would turn to Bill Rossi. So when she came up with this idea, hey, you know, my dad has all this money, let's get Ken Barnes to kill my dad, you want to help in this robbery? He also said, well, sure. And that's where Bill Rothstein, in my mind, takes over. He becomes the whole developer of this scavenger hunt and the notes and the device around the neck and the cane gun. That's all Bill Rothstein. That's not Marjorie. Marjorie is the, hey, I need money to make money. You know, that was her scheme. And if, if, you know, violence needs to be involved, then I'm in. You know, she was more that way. He was the guy that's, I'm smarter than police. You know, police will never figure this out. Um, and he's the one that really put together that whole uh, scheme on how it got done. Now, maybe I'm missing something here, but let's go back to the pregnancies. Um, yes. Were they real, or was this kind of her hook, you know, to, to keep people involved and to keep them interested? Well, you know, this is your child. You know, you can't stop now. We have this in common, and you need to stick around and take care of this. Right. He, um, she didn't realize till later, because I think she had had so many partners, who could be the father. And I think she's only surmising on the one child uh, one was definitely not because, um, you know, I, th- I think that child was uh, partially African-American. But the the one that she's claiming might be Brian Wells' child, we had asked her if she would take a paternity test, you know, all the way back in the years where I was still working the case. And she wouldn't do it at the time, and she never did do it to my knowledge. So she could find out, I think, if she really wanted, but... I think that was just something they threw in at the end of the show to, you know, add more of the mystery of why now she's changed her story that Brian didn't know. Um, I think it just adds to the intrigue of that. Why would she not? Why would she not agree to a DNA test? I know, and that was our point uh, years back when we were saying, okay, uh, who is the father? And she, of course, didn't know because of her, you know, occupation. And so we just said, well, if you don't want to know, that's, I guess, up to you. We'd have to have some DNA to compare so we, we, could, we could arrange for that to happen. But she chose not to at the time. Now, I don't know if she's looking at doing that now. I, I still... You know, I, I never say never in anything because I don't have all the facts in that, uh, but I, I don't know that I would be all that assured that that's her and his child. I I, I mean, it's, I guess it would be possible, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I would find that a, a bit amazing, really. But I've been surprised before, Al, so <laughs> I don't know. You never know. Well, I mean, Plus, you know, and not not saying this to slam her, but she um, she was a prostitute and a, and, yes. and a crack, and she was uh, heavily yes. drugged out, yeah. and she was all over the street, and she was sleeping with all sorts of people, and and without a test, I don't know that anybody could be positive on that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, look at how many reference samples you're going to have to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, elimination That's, samples. Yeah. But it's exactly possible. right. Oh, it's possible. You know, she's probably slept with them, but right. Um, I, I just don't know. That's right. You know, uh, she she just lived yeah. lived too wild of a life to uh, to narrow it down to just him. But right. You know. So so, what do you think? How at the end of the day. Right. What's your thought on the whole thing? Like, it was just Marjorie's thought. It was her plan. Um, things kind of screwed up, and that was just how it went. Or was there more to it that we don't know? Well, I think at the end of the day, it, it still comes back to the fact that you know crimes are committed for uh, you know motivational reasons. A lot of times, it's greed, and in this instance. I think in Marjorie's case, it was greed. I think that's that was her main intent. Again, was if you knew her personality, she was a hoarder, and they showed it on TV. You know, in the in the series, how how her bedrooms, her vehicles, there was no room to walk in, and she collected garbage on garbage night and would bring it home and, and put it in the house because she thought it had value, and all the different things that she did to hoard and it was the same with money for her she she had some money but it was never going to be enough and so she always wanted more and more and more and i think the whole crust for her was you know to get this money from her dad now where i think and i mentioned this a little bit that bill rossi sort of took over and said well i'm dying of cancer potentially I had had cancer in the past. It, re, it, it went into remission and then came back. He probably thought, you know what, I'm going out with one of the craziest all-time schemes ever, and nobody's ever going to be able to solve it. And I could sense that when I interviewed him on his deathbed, and I went into the hospital uh, room, right into his room, and I said, Bill, don't take this with you. You know, cleanse your soul connect these cases, let's let's just end this right here. And he lifted his big arm out of the bed and made a no. And, and four days later, he was dead. So for him, he, it was the ultimate sort of, you know, screw you to, to law enforcement in the world that I'm bringing this with me and you're not smart enough to figure it out. And you could sense that all the way through. If you read the notes, mm-hmm. you know, the notes had some taunting in them where they'd say, we spent seven and a half years in prison perfecting this. You're never going to figure it out an hour. You know, that's taunting to the police. Or when I walked in the room, you know, to interview him that night, he turned the body in uh, of James Roden in the freezer, and I sit down and I say, I'm Jerry Clark. And by the way, this was in one of the episodes for Evil Genius. And he said, hey, I need to tell you I'm the smartest guy in this room. And I looked around, it's just me and him, and I, I said, well, Bill, my wife tells me that every night, so let's get started. And that's how we started that interview. So, I mean, everything he did, there were wires in the collar and the device that went to nowhere, did nothing. A toy cell phone in the device trying to indicate that it was remotely detonated, if it was a real cell phone, but it was a, it was a toy. I mean, things where he, here's the ultimate one that I, I get the biggest kick out of. He ordered, the day Brian Wells delivered those pizzas, he ordered two sausage and pepperoni pizzas, right? And the first thing he says is, well, I'm a vegetarian, so I would have never ordered those. 
<laughs> so, so, okay, we wouldn't be smart enough to figure this out. <laughs> and then the other thing that he wrote on his suicide note, and again, that was that, you know, in, in Evil Genius, where he said on number one on his suicide note was, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. I mean, why would he think to say that? And and so he overthought of things. He overcooked things. He 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 wrote too many notes. He he obsessed in in the planning, and it basically was a horribly planned bank robber if you break it down. But not to him. To him, it was the ultimate bank robbery. And uh, as an investigator, it was anything but. You know, it wasn't well done. Now. I, I hope to God I haven't missed this, but was the intention the whole time for this, you know, neck bomb, was the intention the whole time to blow it up? Well, or, if you or ran... was it supposed to be a fail-safe, or if things go badly? Right. The whole plan, I believe, was for him to never get the device off. And it, 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 here's the other part of the plan, and then I'll go back to that real quickly, because we ran the route that Brian Wells was supposed to do, and he would have never had time. There was a timing mechanism of a 60-minute kitchen timer, basically, that was maybe down to uh, only 57 to even start because of the way they had to put a metal piece in there to make the, the whole device work. But it, long and short was, if, if he would have been following the notes, the way he was directed to go to all the sites, he wouldn't even have had time within the 60-minute timer. So because that included him driving back to the bank, robbing it, getting out of the car, getting the notes at each site, and making the stops, getting on the highway multiple places, he would he just would have never had time. So the thought that we have is that he was going to be, you know, uh, just put to death that day by Bill Rothstein. And wherever he was in the progression of this uh, scavenger hunt was where it was going to go off, depending on how long it took him to get there. And it's sad to say that I think they were going to watch the whole event happen because Bill Rothstein, Marjorie Deal, and Ken Barnes all were on site uh, and, and going to just watch this whole bomb go off. And it, it's just, you know, really when you break that down, that's about as, you know, maniacal as you can do to another human in my mind. Well, what if the bomb went off in a public place? Or did, did they care? Or was that part of, you know, this grand scheme? Yeah, that's the thing. It could have gone off in a place where, uh, you know, people, other people were there or, first responders or, you know, anybody could have been, I think Bill Rothstein had no intent of caring whether or not anybody else was killed, even if more people were killed than, than Brian Wells and law enforcement included, because it had a scored back plate, which means they, they cut this back plate so that it would turn into shrapnel, and that became very highly deadly. Uh, certainly for Mr. Wells, but it could have been potentially deadly for any officer that would have been near that device when it went off. And I was close enough to actually feel the percussion from that device. So it it was a killing machine, there's no doubt about it. 
Oh, and one thing. He, um, the police had to cut his head off, the body. And that, uh, that's yeah. true, right? Like what's... Yeah, unfortunately, and again, this is one of those things where, boy, uh, you never want to have to, uh, to do anything like that. But if you saw this device around his neck when the pathologist in the corner were looking at the wires and, and they were, you know, rightfully so intimidated and thinking, you know, we just don't know how this thing is rigged. So they did not want to open the collar. And the collar basically opened like a big handcuff. And they just felt that if they opened the collar, that it, it may, you know, cause some more damage. So they ended up, um, you know, med- medically and surgically removing uh, Mr. Wells's head and then slide the collar off uh, that way without opening, opening it. Yeah, wow. yeah. The, the the family was pretty upset, or they had that what was it, his brother yes. or something that was on there talking about how bad. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was very upset, and again, you know, I feel for them. I really do. We we had disagreements throughout, you know, throughout the investigation, obviously, because my investigation led to the fact that they knew Brian and Brian knew them, and uh, that was not pleasing to them. And I felt for them. I really did. I didn't. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news to say, well, your brother knew these people and unfortunately trusted them, and they they duped them. So for me, that was the most difficult part of this case was was dealing with the Wells family who had a loss to deal with, and um, that's that's tough. That's tough for investigators. We're human beings. We feel badly, uh, just like anybody else would. Um, but unfortunately, I've got to go where the facts are, and, and I can't have an outcome or I can't have a, an idea of where it should be. It's, it's got to be, you know, without 100%, uh, there can't be any doubt. There can't be any doubt. And beyond a reasonable doubt is a high burden that we have in our system, and Marjorie Deal Armstrong was you know, found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt with a jury of her peers. So we had the evidence, and it, it clearly showed that, unfortunately, he did know these people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it, you know, they shouldn't really um, – I, I wouldn't hold it against Brian either because, I mean, this this was a bad situation. He was uh, – wh- whether he knew or not, he was definitely, right. uh, you know, duped into it at least. Yes. He didn't know this yes. was all going on the way it was, you know? He didn't know he was going to get blown up. No, he would have never signed up in my mind for knowing that the device was real and taking the chance he'd get it off. I don't think he had any knowledge that it had uh, the potential of going off. I really don't believe that. Yeah. Up until the end, now when you saw him at the end, you know, he started getting a little more agitated and nervous. Uh, and, and I sort of just sense that maybe he was sensing, you know, hey, what's going on here? You know, uh, but before that, in the bank, like I said, the lollipop, the whole cavalier, you know, walk, you know, an attitude um, as described by witnesses in the bank, uh, that was more congruent with him not knowing it was real. Yeah, almost like having fun with it. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, 
Jerry, this has been amazing. Um, so <laughs> um, I guess the book now, it's available at all stores. Um, yes. And Amazon, of course. We have it linked to our yes. site. Uh, what's next for you? Like, are you working on a new project? You know, I am. I, I, I've, uh, I'm, I'm teaching at Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania, so I'm, I'm oh. the chair of the department there. I enjoy, you know, sharing my my, my history and uh, background with students, and, and I really get a thrill out of, you know, helping to train the next generation law enforcement fighters out there. So uh, we have a great program, and we enjoy that. Jason Wick, I know a special agent from ATF who worked the case with me, is now at Gannon University with me. So together we uh, are working on some other projects, too, related to other crimes um, and cases that we had because people were so interested in this one. And uh, so we're, we're putting some things out there. We're definitely keeping busy. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, keep in touch. And again, um, our guest has been Jerry Clark. The book is Pizza Bomber, and it's the untold story of America's most shocking bank robber. And uh, thank you for um, taking some time and talking to us. Al and Kev, thank you very much. I had a great, great time. Appreciate it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.